I'm Lindsay. And I'm Sarah. And together, we're the co-founders of Whale Tales, a living library of cetacean stories. Today, we are going to finally talk about porpoises again. Hooray! Plus a super exciting gray whale tale? That can't be right. (laughs) (laughs) So sit back and enjoy as we dive right in. As excited as I am to hear an exciting gray whale tale, (laughs) because that is Stop the Presses moment Mm. of today, it's also Stop the Presses because, yes, you heard right, listeners, we remember, we do remember every time that porpoises are part of our cetacean world. Unfortunately, we don't always give them as much love as they deserve. Mm -hmm. And so we decided for this month's episode, we were going to do another journal club. And specifically pick a relatively new harbor porpoise article mm-hmm. that came out. Woohoo! So welcome yeah. back to Journal Club. We've done this, I think, twice now. And like so four times. Oh. <laughs> I'm great at keeping track of things. It's definitely my job on the team. Um, <laughs> we all know whose job that is. Indeed. It's Lindsay's job. Okay. Yeah. So we've done Journal Club a bunch before, but if you've missed it or if you forget, uh, Journal Club is where we find an article and we all read it and then we come together and talk about it. It's kind of like book club, kind of like school reading assignment, but about cetaceans. Welcome. Um, There's a link in the show notes if you want to read the article before we talk about it. Not that there's spoilers because it's a literature (laughs) article. But, yeah. you know, <laughs> you never know. Um, so this month we read this newish article that was published in May, I think. Like, yeah, May 2023. It was technically accepted in August. So, yeah, brand spanking new. Anyway, Woo-hoo. it's called Harbor's, Harbor Porpoise Aggregations in the Sailor Sea by Dave Anderson at all. And when I first read it, I thought it was Harbor Porpoise Aggressions in the Sailor Sea. And I was really confused. <laughs> <laughs> so I to start again. I love it. Um, so a little bit of background information on sort of like why this article was written and who was involved. Um, a big thing that we'll hear more about when uh, you two get into the results and, and observations of the, it's not so much a study. So this is sort of like a, a compilation article, as it were, of collecting a lot of data from a lot of different organizations. Yeah, it's and almost like a literature review, except the literature is porpoise sightings. Yes, yes, that's exact. That's a great way oh, to describe thanks. it. Um, so before we get into what was sort of uncovered by aggregating all of that information together, well, let's take a look back at what we thought mm. we knew about harbor porpoises. Sounds like quick bait. What you dun, thought you dun. knew about harbor porpoises. Right. <laughs> I'd click on it. <laughs> Um, so typically harbor porpoises were thought to be, and you would have even heard this if you listened to our last porpoise episode when we did talk about harbor porpoises over a year ago. Um, they are, they are the most common porpoise and in British Columbia waters, which is primarily where this article is, is looking, well, the, the, the Eastern Pacific. Salish Sea. Thank you. And Salish Sea. Exactly. Um, we would have considered harbor porpoises to be solitary or sometimes found in small groups of like up to three members. 
They would have been shy, is sort of an anthropomorphic term that is often used to refer to harbor porpoises because they don't, you know, do all of the more acrobatic-y behaviors, <laughs> exciting maybe behaviors that you uh, see from some of the other cetaceans along our coast. And they generally were not like a a species that many people went looking for. We'll call it that. Um, so the many, many, many organizations that worked together to aggregate all of their data decided, hey, maybe if we all pool all of our sightings and all of the things that we've observed in all of the different places in the Salish Sea about these harbor porpoises, maybe we'll learn something new. And I'm not going to spoil what they learned. I'm just going to tell you who all was involved. Because it's a lot. Cascadia Research Collective, Pierce College, Pacific Mammal Research, Pacific Whale Watch Association, and the Sea View Marine Sciences. And some of these organizations are Canadian and some of them are American. So you heard that right, folks. We are talking about data shared between countries. What? Good job, team. Yay! Humpback researchers take note. <laughs> Okay, so basically uh, the authors of this paper took asked people to do sightings and also took the sightings, or I guess asked people for their sightings. It's unclear. Um, all of the above. <laughs> all of the above. And then looked at all of them and said, what do we know? First, they like eliminated double sightings because the big thing they were looking for is not ag- aggressions, but aggregations of harbor porpoises, which is large groups. Um, I think, did they define it as over 20? But yeah, 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 over 20. Um, but so they're looking at over 20 and there can be up to 100, sometimes more in the historical research as well, which is a little bit nutso to think about. Mm-hmm. Um, so they looked for those and then looked at how many there were and how what the validity of the sighting was and how long the sighting was for and stuff like that. And what they found basically was that there's way more than we thought, mm-hmm. like a lot more. Um, for even Cascadia, they did 97 surveys since 2016 and covering mainly the southern part of the Salish Sea, mostly Puget Sound. And they've had 450 porpoise encounters and they had 31 aggregations of 20 or more individuals, uh, 20 more individuals, 31 sightings of large groups of harbor porpoises. And that's just one of these, but there's lots more of big numbers it's like yeah 22 30 in the past couple of years each so Mm -hmm. yeah way more than than you would expect so the other thing that they looked at in these aggregations when they could it was sort of the it the this data was more dependent on who was doing the observation so it's not as it's more qualitative not quantitative Uh, but they looked at the types of behaviors that were happening in these aggregations and i think it had sort of been commonly known or like sort of anecdotally known that porpoises sometimes come together in large groups for feeding, but that it's really just because like they're all in the group because that's where the food is. Like there's a big bait ball and they're all feeding and then they'll come together like in mating times in like larger groups than twos and threes. Um, And it's very 
sporadic and really only happens in the summer. And yeah, this study found, so they were seeing uh, aggregations year round. They have more aggregations in the summer, but basically are assuming that that is primarily due to observer bias. Like that's when there's more um, observations, more people on the water every day. So they're seeing more, but they do see them all year round. And they're also seeing a lot more variety of behaviors beyond just foraging and um, mating. There's also other social behaviors, um, like sort of playful or unknown behaviors, like um, bow riding and some breaching and um, different types of feeding, like cooperative feeding and um, yeah, other, other social behaviors that um, were interesting. So yeah, there's definitely, it's not just a summer like they're not just coming together because there's a bait ball. Like they're coming together for other social reasons. Yeah, I think the craziest thing that I noted down in the methods, and then there are some some decent numbers of these sightings, is that they define long-term aggregations as like a week or 10 days, yeah. which is like for 100 porpoises, which is I've literally never heard of. And whale tails has been no. around for nine years. And I've never heard anybody say that. I remember one instance of Anna Hall who is – an author of this paper of seeing of like as somebody telling me that she saw a large group of porpoises down, I don't know, race rocks or somewhere super down there. And it was super large and it was full of stuff. And maybe that was what sparked this paper. I have no idea. Cause it was a while yeah. ago, but like week long hundred porpoises. Why isn't anybody talking about that? I know. <laughs> and even the short term aggregations, they would define as a day or a couple of days. Which is when you see a porpoise, it was it's like four seconds and then it's over. And you're like, did I hallucinate that? Yeah. The other thing that came out from this or that I sort of realized from this and I knew that they'd been working on it was the Porpoise Conservation Society had been doing trying to do some photo ID. And so mm -hmm. there's, um, I think, a lot of opportunity presented here to continue studying the fidelity of these groups. They've found fidelity in smaller groups. So like when you see groups of three, like those three individuals are often recited in the same group. But it would be interesting to know, like these larger groups, is there at this any similar um, fidelity. The other thing with these groups is sometimes it'll be like um, fission fusion. So like a bunch of them will come together and then they'll do something like some cooperative feeding and then they'll split up and then they'll come back together, split up and come back together over a period of time. Um, and that's really mm -hmm. interesting and, too. Yeah. And the individuals in those subgroups also can change. Yeah. Yeah. So in, also that, interesting. in that case, yeah, they sort of like shuffle mm -hmm. around into smaller groups. Yeah. Um, and if it's like, if, if mating is occurring, that would make sense. Yeah. At or if point? they're like splitting up to find food. It seems like mm -hmm. a lot of the time they're like probably feeding and mating. Like it, you know, it's not probably. like they're, it's not like either or, it's like a lot yeah. of both. Yeah. Actually, one thing I did want to say that I was thinking about in the discussion, and then I did a search back to see if I missed it because they talk about social behaviors in cetaceans and how they didn't expect, they never really thought that porpoises were one of them. They thought they were solitary all of mm -hmm. this stuff. And then they bring up the Southern residents, of course, because it's a very well-known social group and they have all sorts of things. And they talk about vocalizations and how porpoise vocalizations are different. So they don't necessarily have like um, name calls, which is not the right name, but I've forgotten the term for a second. But anyway, yeah, they don't bring up the fact that harbor porpoises are prey 
anywhere mm-hmm. in this paper. Like I did a search for Biggs and it's not in the paper at all. Yeah, hmm. it, it that's interesting because, yeah, I would assume that that would be one of the drivers yeah. either of coming together as a group or that group splitting up would splitting be up. Yeah. avoiding predation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As, which yeah. is strange, especially like their numbers are rising. They're mm-hmm. doing really well in the Salish Sea, but they're also one of the reasons why Biggs are doing really well in the Salish Sea. Mm-hmm. And it seems yeah. odd. And yeah, the other thing that they don't really answer, because I don't think it is really that answerable, is like, are these aggregations, like, are we seeing more of them because we're looking for them? Mm-hmm. Or are we seeing more of them because as the populations come up, this is just how they are. This is that's yeah. Yeah. this is like similar to, to normal. Yeah, like when the lags came back and they mm-hmm. were further south than we thought that they came and they yeah. were in bigger groups and we're like, this is weird, mm-hmm. but is it weird? Or is it just the first time we've seen this in fifty years? Yeah. yeah. Well, and that was the thing that I thought was most interesting about the paper, because it always went back to what our colleagues at the DC Cetacean Sightings Network BC Cetacean Sightings Network would say all the time, which is the absence of data is still data. Yeah. yeah. And to me, this paper was such a great reminder of that because as all three of us know from our time on the water, and I used to see harbor porpoises all the time when I was crossing the strait, but it would be the one or two and that's it. And everybody on the boat would be like, we have to stop. Like, no, we're not going to see them again. <laughs> they're, they're gone. The, I, it, it, it's the bias effect, mm-hmm. right? Where like, that's what I saw. And I thought I was out on the water quite a lot. And so it's such a valuable reminder yeah. of when you are out on the water, what you are seeing is true of what you are seeing, but that doesn't mean that that's other happening. things are not also yeah. true. Yeah. 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 It was good. Like sort of validation of anecdotes. Like, you know, you, people mm-hmm. would hear, I think, and that's probably what led to the study was like, people would, you would hear anecdotes of these like big groups of porpoises. And it's like, oh, that must be a super rare, like once in a lifetime, like random mm-hmm. occurrence. And then they learned through this, like, no, it happens multiple times a year, like, or multiple times a month. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the other thing that's not really about aggregations, but like talked about the prey and I like, didn't realize that they ate such a huge variety of things and like also that it changes a lot. So further south, like the southern part of Puget Sound, the sort of southern end of um, of the Salish Sea, they there's squid and also um, Yulicon. Uh, anch- Northern anchovy mm, and, right. and Yulicon. Yeah. So like I totally didn't even really click that in this area they would be eating that kind of stuff. I just always assumed it was like herring. Um, herring and smelt and you know, like maybe some salmon. But also they also talked about they sometimes eat adult salmon, which is wild. What? Not just smelt. Yeah. That's just that's like the same size. Well, it depends on the salmon species. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> yeah. The smaller ones they could eat an adult. Yeah. Um, so that was really interesting. And um yeah, and like I think because they eat such a variety and they're like all of these um various fish have like such different spawning seasons and locations and stuff so yeah there's a huge variety of prey and that might like the the spawning like the cyclical nature of a spawning fish might have something to do with some of the aggregations but it Mm -hmm. seems like there's also yeah this um social aspect and also they noticed that during these aggregations the porpoises are more likely to actually interact with slow moving or stopped vessels um yeah which is interesting um yeah because like like that also brings me back to the safety part of like Mm -hmm 
the large numbers. And I don't, obviously, I have no idea if that's why they're doing it, but yeah. that could be a reason. So I'm just, it's weird to me that that's not, wasn't hypothesized as a reason. Yeah. As well. But I don't yeah. know. It's strange. I just, bigs yeah. hunt in small groups and they only hunt one piece, item of prey at a time. So a large group, your numbers are reduced. It's not like a big, a killer whale is going to go in there with its mouth open and chomp down five of you. Yeah. Yeah, it would be, it's interesting. I feel like this paper ans- asks more questions or like makes me think of more questions than it answers, which is awesome. Like it's yeah. such a driver. No, yeah, they definitely talk about more things that they yeah. want to do, mm-hmm. um, including finding out. That's what it was. They didn't, because they're, that's what William meant to think about the literature review mm-hmm. um, definition is because they don't know what they were feeding on when they observed certain feeding behaviors and exactly. large groups because they weren't there. They were looking at other people's data so they're like yeah. got to get out on the water and scoop the stuff up and figure out what it is so yeah i think anything else either of you want to say on the article um i think my main thing is like this is such a great model of like collating data from such a huge variety of sources mm-hmm. and like really making an effort like it seems like they did some pretty manual really detailed work to try to reduce duplicates and like get some like valid numbers because i think especially in the large aggregations and like a pretty populous, like, you know, in the summer when there's tons of boats out there, that would be so easy to have duplicate observations, but like they did a really great job of that. And then, yeah, just figuring out ways to meaningfully combine data from like a huge variety of sources, like scientists and um, citizen scientists and naturalists and yeah, like all these things that are just like, I don't know, it feels very whale tailsy. It did. It did. Yeah. Yeah, Like, yeah, there's lots of things they talked about, the use of apps and yeah. Yeah. And then the naturalists are there. And, and of course, like they also talked about the difficulties of that because apps only have so many behaviors and also a random person on a boat doesn't know exactly what's happening. And yeah. So well, like, there's, yeah, there's going to be that issue, but you still got the info. So there's an example of one sighting where they saw like a experienced, really um, knowledgeable observer saw like 40 feeding attempts in this aggregation, but like, the average person or even like a less experienced scientist wouldn't catch mm-hmm. that many yeah. mm-hmm. feeding attempts or foraging behaviors in one sighting. So yeah. yeah. And um, like, it's very well known in Harbor porpoise land that males breach before they mate. That's how mm-hmm. they mate. But a normal um, person just out on the water at, with an app, probably wouldn't know that and it's not going to be in an app for all the cetaceans of the salish sea it's exactly yeah reach <laughs> no. so there's no real way to know of like, like it's breaching assumed. versus breaching leading yeah. to baiting yeah yeah it's probably assumed mm-hmm. i don't know by them but i would assume that it would be a mating yeah. behavior because they do that's the main reason for their breaching yeah. that we know of but still it's one of those things that like you have no idea it's not yeah. like it's obviously a male either they're yeah. not yeah sexually dimorphic so yeah exactly um yeah no i thought it was a great article really super interesting Mm -hmm. and i sort of learned and relearned a lot about porpoises yeah and they're cool and like yeah we would probably know a lot more about them if killer whales weren't here (laughs) but i'm I'm happy killer whales are here but it's just one of those things of again similar to this podcast episode but just as a sailor sea in general of like if they were the only cetaceans that were on our coast, we would know everything about them. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So we're happy to give them a little more attention this month. Yay, porpoises. 
And we'd love to hear your thoughts on this study too. So as uh, Sarah mentioned, we've included a link to the show note, a link in the show notes where you can find the complete article for free. Yay. Free access to science. Uh, feel free to have a read and send us your thoughts. And I know there's a lot of authors because as we mentioned, there's also a lot of different organizations that were sort of contributing their data to this paper. And so, you know, give them the kudos they're due send a find their socials as well and say thanks this was really cool and we like learning about it and more sharing of data all good <laughs> yeah Amazing. let's do it uh before we continue with the rest of the episode we want to take a moment to tell you about how you can support our podcast and everything we do at whale tales you can join us by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash whaletales. You can join us at the porpoise level for a dollar a month. For $5 a month, you can become a dolphin level supporter. And for $10 a month, you can join us at the whale level. Each level comes with a variety of perks, including polls, thank you postcards, access to extended interviews or stories, extra stories that we've done with our guests. And at the whale level, you can even produce your own fun flipper fact segment of the pod and send me on a crazy deep dive into answering whatever question you have. Plus, our whale level patrons also get access to a special Patreon-only podcast, Whale Tales Watches. Our latest episode of this, we watched The Meg 2, so you didn't have to. (laughs) (laughs) And coming up next month, we are going to be watching Orca. (laughs) Oh, boy. The horror question mark movie? I don't know. We'll find find out. Never seen it. We'll find out. So if you want to hear all about it, you can join us as a whale level patron and we will watch it for you. (laughs) Yep. Uh, thank you so much to all of our patrons. You are amazing, and we are so glad you're here. If you aren't able to support us financially, there's still lots of other things you can do to help us out. You can leave us a rating or a review on your podcast platform of choice, like Apple Podcasts or Spotify. This will help other people find us. And you can also just tell all your cetacean science podcast-loving friends about the podcast and everything we do at Whale Tales so that they can join in. Hooray! If you're a new listener, welcome! Thanks for joining us! Now go find more people! <laughs> Spread the word. Plus, you can follow us on social media at whaletales underscore org and send us your feedback so that we can keep making the podcast even better. Now, do you know what time it is? Yes. Yes, I do. (laughs) It's time for Fun Flipper Facts. Hooray. Just a little soft one. A little soft (laughs) one for people today. Um... Today's Fun Flipper Fact is also about harbor porpoises. Yeah. I wanted to give them a little bit of extra love. And it's kind of a quick one, but an interesting one. Going on theme. Do either of you know how deep harbor porpoises can dive? Mm, no. No, but I'm going to guess not very. But I'm guessing you're going to blow our minds. Ah, that's exactly <laughs> what's going to happen. The leading question, Nicole. <laughs> correct. 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 So I'm not... Let, let's set expectations mm. appropriately here. <laughs> What I'm about to tell you is not going to break, like, a beaked whale's diving record by any stretch of the imagination. We're still talking about, like, relatively sized, appropriate, porpoise-level diving. And they live near shore, so, like... They do live near shore. The options are limited. (laughs) Correct. But yet, I was still very impressed by this. Um, So this data actually comes from... Boo, a not free article, but I will still include the article in the 
show notes to give the authors and the researchers the credit that they're due. Um, just know that you won't be able to read the whole article. But it did look at harbor porpoise dive data, and the maximum recorded dive for a harbor porpoise was 740 feet. Huh. Oh. So that's like 250, 250 meters, roughly? Ish? Yeah. And to give you a visual of that, because let's remember, harbor porpoises are small. They're itty bitty. They are smaller than uh, shorter salmon. in length than <laughs> than some salmon. Which is <laughs> <laughs> insane. Um, also, then all three of us, not that you, our listeners, can see us physically, but good for uh, to know. They're usually about five, maybe five and a half feet long. So they are itty bitty littles. And uh, so think about that. Think about basically you. Mm-hmm diving up because this is a tower sized mm-hmm. thing so it's in the air but you know as we do when we talk about flip mountains yep. flip buildings whatever on the um that's as tall as the golden gate bridge oh that's yeah. a lot yeah the yeah. golden gate bridge is 745 feet high oh. wow yeah no that's yeah. that's pretty impressive for some little porpoises good job dude yeah. so tiny also there's yeah. a lot of porpoises Who's live in the in the Golden Gate Bridge yeah. area? So, so that's fun go. for them. Yeah, yeah, Aww, cute. I don't think they're diving that deep there because San Francisco Bay, I don't believe, is that deep. No, probably not. But <laughs> it's just, I've seen a lot of photos of people taking pictures of porpoises from the Golden yeah. Gate Bridge. Anyway, that's so there impressive. You go. There Good job, porpoises. Is your fun flipper fact? <laughs> and now it's time for a very exciting whale tale, and that's exciting because it's ours. Yeah, well, this is the first time I think... It's yours. It's two of yes. yours. I am well, very jealous. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, Lindsay and I went on vacation to Oregon, and we went whale watching. Yay! Woo-hoo! It was amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we went to Depot Bay, which is the whale watching capital of something. I don't yeah, know. There was Oregon. a lot of signs. Yeah. Maybe Oregon, maybe Northern <laughs> Oregon. Nobody knows. Well, they probably know, but I don't. <laughs> um... So the thing about Depot Bay is that it's a bay. Yeah. And let me tell you that's what's weird about Oregon is there are no boats yeah. anywhere. Like we were sitting on the beaches up like slightly north of Depot Bay, like near Seaside for hours and saw no boats. No boats. Which when you live in a bay that's next to a harbor, it's weird. Yeah. Or next to a port is what I was meant to say. Anyway, so we went to Depot Bay and then there were boats. Hooray. Yeah. Um, so th- because this harbor was man-made, basically they like, scooped everything out so they yeah. could have a teeny tiny harbor of four docks, uh, which are mostly whale watching now because they do have a local group of gray whales who don't migrate up to Alaska. They stay in Oregon yeah, uh, all summer long. Yeah, they're resident <clears throat> sort of like through the spring, summer, early fall. Yeah, so they came, I think you said sometime in June this year. Yeah. Uh, and we'll leave soon-ish to go back to Mexico and do their thing. Yeah. But the thing about that is that it's very guaranteed whale watching, and you are on a boat for about 10 minutes before yeah. you ah, so see a awesome. whale. We went on a boat. There was six passengers and the driver, Captain Naturalist. It was like an open Zodiac. And because of, like, you know, the instruction said to come half an hour early, and we didn't know what we were getting into, so we you know, rule following Canadians that we are, uh, we're half an hour early and everybody else was early too. So we literally had seen a whale before our tour was officially supposed to start. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it was great. Amazing. And we 
we were, I don't know, how far offshore do you think we were at the most? Like, no, like 200 meters? Probably. Yeah, from like the shore, because the bay is actually inside. You have to go yeah, under. The, yeah, you go under a, a little bridge. A bridge. That's yeah, but from the, the like out the outer edge of the shore, we were like, yeah. Yeah, 200 two, meters. 300 meters offshore. Like, very close. So close. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, because there was a kelp area there and gray whales, uh, especially these gray whales, feed on mices, which live on kelp. Yeah. So as opposed to the gray whale feeding that we see here, which makes me feel mad about gray whales <laughs> in my normal feelings about gray whales because they're just rolling around on the water and going down and scooping stuff out from the, the from sand the to eat their yeah. little bivalvey things. These ones are actually in the kelp blowing bubbles to get the little crilly shrimpy guys, hey, krill, um, off of the kelp to yeah. bubble on up. Yeah, so basically there was like a pretty cyclical feeding behavior. Like they would, you'd see a big bubble come up and that would be the whale underwater blowing a bubble to like shake the mycids up, loosen them from the kelp. And then a couple minutes after that, you would they would do like three to six breaths like in pretty close succession right at the surface and then they would do a dive we saw a couple flukes um all backlit so we didn't get any good pictures but um yeah a couple flukes but not usually because i think it was pretty shallow um and then they would dive down deep and then after a couple minutes they you would see a big bubble and so like you could watch the same whale feeding in a pretty small area like pretty regularly and like get mm-hmm. to sort of see their rhythms and stuff yeah it was really cool yeah um, and the fun part about that also is that they are kelping at the same time. So they were often covered in kelp mm-hmm. um, and there were times when they would be a little bit more enthusiastic with their breathing mm-hmm. than we would expect. And so they would come up and they would just be covered in kelp, very sea monstery. Yeah. And that's always fun. Um, yeah. Super. Yeah. Fun. Yeah. So we saw probably about five in the active part of the whale watching. Yeah. Um, Maybe three at once in a kelp bed. Hard to tell. Yeah, I think we saw three at once, and what, then sort of, and we wa- we stayed with one for a long time, mm-hmm. um, whose name was Marissa. Yeah, um, and we'll say these names were given to the whales by the naturalists of Depot Bay. Yeah. The Oregon State University does have IDs for them. I was going to look up the catalog, and totally forgot, so I'll put it in the show notes if I can find it. Yeah, if it exists, or a website or something about these IDs. So they usually have like this summer, they had 40 of the resident animals mm-hmm. come back and the naturalist, like this guy has been doing it for millions of years. And so he just knows them similar to um, well-experienced naturalists anywhere in the world. You, if you see the same whale, you're just like, Oh yeah. He also had been out because it's a, such a short trip. He'd also been out like five times that day. Already. Yeah. <laughs> so it was like three <laughs> o'clock. Yeah. So he's like, yeah, Marissa's over here. We'll just go watch her. Um, so I don't know what Marissa's technical official identification number is, but if I can find it, I will add it to the, um, post for this story. Yeah. Um, we also, it was really cool. There was a whale that was further off, uh, like deeper than the kelp beds. And, um, yeah, we saw that one sort of out in the distance. And then, uh, one of the other boats realized that it, um, it was sleeping, which was cool. Mm-hmm. So it was really neat to get to see a whale cool. sort of just floating right on the surface. You know, everybody was giving it lots of space because, like, they're sort of half awake, but, like, pretty dumb. So, like, you wouldn't want to get too close because they're not that awake. Um, and 
because this whale had a lot of barnacles and also it seemed like um, the boat driver said he had like a bit of a like skin condition, basically it was really light in color all the way along. So even when he was a couple feet under the surface, you could see pretty well where he was. And yeah, so he would just kind of like float along, you know, a couple very occasional pumps of his tail, like very half-hearted and then like gentle breaths, like way different than the feeding breaths, like way, way, way softer and um, like smaller. And yeah, then, he was also yeah. a much shorter whale. He's probably yeah, he was really small, s- smaller than our boat. He did come pretty close at one point. Yeah, but I think his length was comparable to our zodiac. Well, yeah, the feeding female was way really bigger. big. Yeah, she's like, huge. It's been a long time since I've seen a whale, and it's been a long time since I've seen a gray whale. But yeah, that whale was big. Yeah, and because we saw them dive, like yeah, um, so we saw their whole body because like sort of their snout rostrum area would kind of come up and then they would go down and we would see like you'd be like oh they're gonna fluke and then no because they're no, so they're long still more body. <laughs> she was so long especially yeah yeah. yeah so that was cool his name that the naturalist has given was lazy bones which was fitting <laughs> his current behavior yeah yeah and then we had like a i don't know 10 or 15 minute drive back to the dock and we saw even more blows on the way back um yeah it was yeah and then we got chill. almost to the bridge harbor thing and there was one really far in, like past the kelp beds near the harbor, which was a little bit odd. Yeah. But then it fluked. And yeah. then we went home and it was very nice. It was very magical. And then yeah. we went to a restaurant and had grilled cheese and tomato soup. It yeah. was great. <laughs> a plus. Oh, and we saw a pelican. Oh yeah. Ah! yeah. And sea lions, but and sea lions. you always see sea lions. Yeah. Yeah. They were like they were they weren't even cowies. They were just stellars. Yeah. I mean, they were just hanging out on the Yeah. Hanging out on the buoy. Like yeah. Just like any good sea lions. Yeah. Like any sea lion thing. Yeah. It was great. And it was great. the boat, the charter, the whale watching company that we went out with was called Whale Tales. Yeah. Or Whale's Tail. Whale's yeah. Tail. Whale's Tail. Well, yeah. That's just perfect. Yeah. And it seems I like it was a it? pretty small operation. <laughs> like I think the boat driver and the person sort of in the office are like the only, like they're the co-owners and that's it. Yep. So yeah. Very fun. Very chill. And yeah, it seems like like all the there was bigger boats and there was some that seems like they maybe do like seasonal or morning um, like fishing charters and then they do mm-hmm. whale watching in the afternoon. Yeah. So lots of so lots like, of different boats. We were nice. definitely the yeah. small boat out there, which was nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's our whale tale. Hooray. First time we've gotten Thank to do like a live whale tale. Yeah, it's been a while. I know, because we haven't seen whales in so yeah, long. so long. I know. Since We've, like, the podcast. read old stories on the podcast, but yeah. not, like, mm-hmm. yeah, a fresh yeah. one. <laughs> Amazing. Um, okay, before we head out, we wanted to give you some calls to action, um, especially for the fall slash Halloween. And I'm going to steal this one from Lindsay's sister, because she does a really cool thing for Halloween with, I think, herself and her kids, where... As soon as the thrift store near them puts out Halloween costumes, she goes and picks out their Halloween costumes from the thrift store. And I think it's great. And um, I'm a big advocate of thrifting or just scrounging up around your house Halloween costumes rather than like buying a whole fresh costume or like, yeah. So I don't know. That's my recycled, reused Halloween costume. And also you get a costume from the thrift store and then you give it back at the thrift store and somebody else wears it the next year. Like, it's great. Yep, and also then you get double Halloween because the kids get to wear it in August and they're super excited about it and they call you and you're like, what is happening? (laughs) Yeah, yes. And then they forget about it because they're five and they get to wear it again in in 
uh, October. Yeah. Um, and yeah, recycling. I was going to say with recycling costumes and finding what you can find. Once my mom, not mm. problematic at the time, made a Pocahontas costume for my sister out of our curtains. Amazing. So, there you go. Yeah. Uh, mine is also my sister's. Uh, she makes, they all have Halloween craft day. A bunch of people come over. And last year we made spiders Ooh, out fun. of toilet paper rolls yeah. and one paper towel roll, which was an epic spider. Um, so, yeah, just there's so many. I found an entire website for her last year. Oh, of, like recycled um, Halloween crafts? Yeah, like nice. coffee filters and toilet Ooh, yeah. paper rolls and all sorts of things. Obviously, paper bags. Like, there's lots of things that you could buy, but also just have around your house or yeah. are things that you're going to recycle that you just, you know, construction paper, googly eyes, pipe cleaners. Yeah. Done. So and fun. When your kids are five to 10, like, they don't care. Yeah. So the, the act of making them and then having them in the house for three days for Halloween. Is the good stuff. So I'll find a link because there's millions of Halloween things, but I'll find one and put it in the show notes for you guys. Um, it's not exactly a recycled craft, but it is on the subject of Halloween. Reusing is probably a better way that mm-hmm. I would say. And it's science-based. Ooh. This is a science experiment that is also my kids' favorite thing to do these days. Um, and I like it because I it helps me caffeinate myself. <laughs> so <laughs> here's my little shout out. Uh, if you want, and you know what I will say, it's legit cool. It's not just five-year-old cool. It's legitimately a very cool science experiment. So if you have tea bags, um, sort of like your typical, you know, no name brand tea bags mm-hmm. not uh, they do have to have the string mm. attached so like the like tetley bags or whatever yeah 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 exactly um but they have to be kind of like the the papery ones not the silky ones. yes yeah exactly um what you're gonna do is i'll see if i can find some actual instructions to share the visuals of this as well and also i will say we learned this from shout out to emily's wonder lab which is a netflix show um, that is really awesome for kids and adults alike who like science and wonder. So you take a tea bag and you cut just the like little bit that has the staple off at the top. And then you pour the tea leaves into a diffuser so that you, the adults, can have just straight tea. <laughs> and it's very good. <laughs> um, and the tea does not go to waste. And then what you can do, it, and I had no idea a tea bag looked like this until we did it the first time. And now we've done it like five different times. It's always, always a hit. Um, you unfurl the tea bag and it becomes actually like a toilet paper roll. Like it's a tube. Oh. Yeah, I know. Crazy. Right? Because huh. it looks like a square. And then when you cut that triangle bit with the staple off at the top... Podcasts, I really wish were a visual medium <laughs> just for this. Yeah, I'm sad that we don't also get to see your interpretive dance. <laughs> Sorry. Um, when you cut that off and then you pour the tea out, it unfurls and it's a tube. So then what you do is in a bathroom or other place where it's safe to use fire, mm. this mm-hmm. is where it becomes a legit cool experiment <laughs> while you are caffeinating yourself with the loose leaf tea now. Um, you stand this little tube of a tea bag up 
and with a lighter, you light the top of it. And then you watch as science happens mm-hmm. because tea bags are very, very light and heat rises. <gasps> and so then it flies what? on fire. But don't worry, it's not going to burn anything because it also burns really, really quickly. And so it turns <laughs> to ash very quickly. Seems like a great outside activity. <laughs> Yes, uh, we've done it in the bathtub oh, a few yep. times when it has not been appropriate weather-wise to do outside. Yep, um, and it's super safe and totally fine to do in your bathtub. Nice. It's not going to catch your shower curtain on fire or anything like yep. that. Like literally, it burns out in under three seconds. Nice, but in that three seconds, it flies. Uh-huh. And so Emily's Wonder Lab called this a tea bag ghost, mm-hmm. and. It's so it's spooky. It's Halloween themed. You are using something in a new and interesting way. But you know, if you're gonna make yourself a cup of tea, yeah. you're gonna have this anyway. So yeah. just t- the only thing I would say is you do need the tea bag to be dry. So take the tea, like yeah. the leaf tea, out before you brew your cup of tea. Yeah, yeah, it <laughs> like, won't catch on fire if it's wet. I'm assuming. Yeah, no, and then it's really, really cool. So fun. So enjoy the magic of science. <laughs> and I would like highly encourage if you, even if you have no children in your lives. I know. I'm like, should I do, do this it. with it's my really tea cool. that I will be making as soon as we finish this recording? <laughs> it's really <laughs> might <cool>. happen. <laughs> Amazing. So yeah, not our regular call to action, but just kind of, we wanted to do some fun, like, how can you have some fall fun in some interesting and still environmentally friendly ways? Yeah, Yeah. we love spooky times. Indeed. We do. And I think that about brings us to the end of our episode. So we would love to hear your thoughts on this or any episode. And you can do that by visiting our website, whale-tales.org, and finding links to our various social media handles to drop us a line. You can also head to our site to subscribe to the podcast, learn about supporting us and everything we do at Whale Tales, and, or becoming a patron. And you can also check out almost 1,300 whale, dolphin, and porpoise stories. That's whale-tales.org. Tales like the stories, not tales like the animal. And if you've seen a cetacean at any time, doesn't have to be last week when you were on vacation, uh, we would love to add your story to our library. You can click the share link on our site, contact us on social media at whaletales underscore org, or you can email us a voice memo and tell us all about your incredible cetacean encounter. Join us next month on the last Wednesday of the month again, right? So yep. we're gonna right before gonna be Halloween. Right before spooky spook time on October twenty fifth, when we will have a special guest joining us for our next episode. Who could it be? I don't know. Is Who it, could it be? Would it Who be we the usually have same at this time of year? <laughs> we have every October. To give us a bit of a summary of what life was like on the water in the Salish Sea Hooray! this past summer. I Yay! love this episode. Yes, so it's our friend Ashley. Yay! Yay! That'll be fun. I can't yeah. wait. Hooray! Finally, we want to acknowledge that we recorded today's episode on the unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples and the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations, as well as the homelands of the Tawasan First Nations. Thanks, everybody, so much, and we hope you have a really great day.